0: this message that he has placed on my heart as we've moved along in our series in 1st Peter. We have now landed on a section of text that for the next few weeks are going to be very practical for us as believers. We'll look at how we are to live in the government, how we are to live in our workplaces, and how we are to function in the home. So I believe these next few weeks will really be helpful to all of us, whether you are Uh, Empty nesters, whether you have kids, whether you're retired, whether you are still working, uh, all of those things will be covered in the next few weeks. And so uh, before we begin, we're going to look at uh, some verses for our confession time from Psalm 107. So I'm going to read uh, several verses from that text this morning, and then we will take a few moments to ask the Lord to search our hearts and prepare us for the message today. So let me begin by reading Psalm 107, verses 1 through 9. And He delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. For He satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul He fills with good things." Lord, we come to you today thankful that you are patient with us, that you are long-suffering and merciful. And today, Lord, we all have sinned and fallen short of your glory. Lord, we all struggle, even as believers, to walk this Christian walk. Uh, we are unable to do so without your Holy Spirit, without your Word, and without your empowering. So help us today, Lord, to confess and forsake our sins, uh, to search our hearts, and to seek you, Lord, because you first sought us. And so we rejoice In the fact that we are your people and you are our God. And we pray for those today that are watching and those that are here that may not know you. uh, That today would be the day that you would uh, convict them and draw them. So that they might receive you by repentance and faith. Lord, help us to take this message today. And uh, to seriously consider what your word has to say about this topic. To put aside our preferences, our opinions. And to trust the word of God to be true. In all things. We love you, Lord, and we thank you again for your grace to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, the title of the message today is one that uh, I believe is very much needed in our world today. I think there is a lot of confusion on this topic, and I hope to try to clarify some of that. I also know that it can be very controversial. Uh, I know that everyone has an opinion about politics, and that uh, it can become very divisive. And so my intention today is not to be political per se, it's certainly not to intentionally be divisive, it is to give us a biblical perspective on what the government is, what their authority is and what it is limited to, and where that authority ultimately lies and comes from. And so the title of my message today is Godly Living Under a Godless Government. Godly Living Under a Godless Government. And I'm going to do something a little bit different today because I'm going to look at two texts that are parallel to one another. So 1 Peter 2 is our main text where we have been in this series. 1 Peter 2, verses 13 through 17. But I want you to hold your spot in 1 Peter, and I want you to find Romans 13 as well. I'm not going to ask you to stand today for sake of time uh, because there's a lot of scripture there. But I want to reference both of those because they really run concurrent with one another. And so Romans 13, 1 through 7, and 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17 will be our main text today. And so just kind of hold both of those places and you'll be able to flip back and forth with me as we go. But I want us to think about, uh, as believers and as human beings in general, we we have a propensity to sway from one extreme to another in in many things in life. And when it comes to government and the role of government, that is no different. Uh, We have a tendency to sway to one extreme. Uh, Some folks can fall into what's called, uh, or at least what was called in in Paul's day, is antinomianism, which is basically a a form of lawlessness. We might call that anarchy today. We see a lot of that going on in many cities where uh, people basically say to to get attention, to get my point across, to uh, initiate change, I am going to participate in all sorts of lawless deeds. I'm going to riot. I'm going to burn down buildings. I'm going to just live an anarchist type of life until I get my voice heard. And we've certainly seen a lot of that in the last year. Uh, and then on the other end of the spectrum, we might see folks fall into this pacifist mindset where we don't want any kind of rebellion. We want nothing but absolute submission and authority to anything that comes along. Uh, we don't withstand any government. We don't speak out against any government. We just take whatever comes uh, and that let the chips fall as they may. And I would argue that both of those are unbiblical and sway too much to the extreme in, in both situations. Uh, I want to read to you a quote by a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'm sure a lot of you have heard of him. He was a Lutheran pastor in Germany during the rise of, of Hitler's regime. And from day one, he was very outspoken uh, against it to the point where he ultimately uh, lost his life and, and his stance and his position uh, to Hitler. But he said this very famous quote, and I want you to think about this uh, in light of the message and in light of perhaps the government that we see in existence uh, and continuing to uh, overstep its boundaries in our country today. Silence in the face of evil is evil itself. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. And I would say that Dietrich Bonhoeffer was correct in those words. So, we, we are going to look at these texts today. And I want, I want to ask you some questions to kind of go along with this message. Because I think it's so important for us as Christians to understand what the government's role is and what it isn't and how we as believers are to respond when a government is ungodly. When a government is ungodly, what is our obligation to that government, if any? Uh, because... What do we do when a government is evil? What do we do when a government goes directly in opposition to the Word of God? What are we to do? How are we to respond? Let me ask that question another way. Does the Bible command obedience to tyrants? Well, look at that. I want you to think about this. And again, this is not an attack on any party. This is just simply stating where we are at in our world today. The current president, before he was elected, said this, Transgender equality is the civil rights issue of our time. Transgender equality is the civil rights issue of our time. And he has followed and been true to that belief by stating that in his first 100 days in office... He would, in fact, move forward with the Equality Act. If you don't know what the Equality Act is, I encourage you to get very familiar with it, because most likely it is going to become law in this land, and without question, it will affect the way that we worship. It will affect the, if we allow it. Uh, it will affect what we preach. It will affect your children and grandchildren. Mark it down without question. If the Equality Act uh, does pass. Let me give you a couple of things that it will follow along suit with it. Schools, churches, and health care organizations will be deemed as public accommodations, which means schools, churches, and hospitals could be forced to accept the government's beliefs and mandates about sexual orientation and gender identity. It will threaten everyday speech where people can be fined or lose their jobs if they use the wrong gender or pronoun. It could legislate, number two, an allowance of boys' and girls' sports, boys and girls' locker rooms, men and women's shelters, and men and women's prisons. It could force teachers and students to publicly recognize gender fluidity and encourage or mandate that schools instruct first, second, and third graders that they can choose to be a boy, a girl, neither, or both. Third, it could strip health professionals of their rights of conscience, seeking to force doctors and medical professionals to engage in gender transition treatments such as hormone blocking, cross-sex hormones, or surgery. And lastly, it could be a government tool used to deny or threaten accreditation to religious colleges and universities if they do not apply sexual orientation and gender identity to dorms, sports, places of privacy, and teaching. So what that means is for a church to stand up and preach that there are two genders, for a church to stand up and hold to traditional marriage, you will in fact face fines and perhaps imprisonment for hate crimes that is the seriousness of what we are facing with our government today my friends elections have consequences and when we vote for personalities over politics and policies we reap what we sow we will reap what we sow and so how do we respond should things like that become the law of the land how do we as believers respond to that Does 1 Peter 2 and Romans 13 mean that we just unquestionably obey the government at all times? Let me ask some more questions. Does the authority of the government have limitations? Who determines that? What is the purpose of the government? Who decided that? You see, one of the things, and I even heard it as I asked those questions from some of you, one of the things that confusion has come is as Americans we believe that we the people are the government and rightly so but I think we have lost the fact that government is something that was instituted from God It came and formed in the mind of God. And while we are a democratic nation, God does not set up necessarily uh, a democracy as the standard. It it, it works well. It is probably the best form of human government that there is. But God is uh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords and His government is perfect. And so I want us to look at this text today and try to answer some of those questions uh, that I've asked you from a biblical perspective. So let's look first at 1 Peter uh, 2.13, and then I'll read Romans 13.1. So this is 1 Peter 2.13. Be subject or submit for the Lord's sake to every human institution. That word institution is difficult to translate. It probably is better translated literally creature. So be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution or creature, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, and then he'll go on in the next verse that we'll look at it in a minute. Romans thirteen one. Let every person be subject, or again, let every person submit to the governing authorities. For there is now listen to this. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted or ordained by God. A couple of months ago, some of you might have saw this story. Pastor James Coates, a pastor's a church in Canada, and who was arrested because he went against the government's unjust uh, regulations of not allowing the church to gather together for service. And they continued to have service, and he was imprisoned for doing so, for standing up against that that illegal uh, government mandate to try to shut down churches. And he said this, We are awful historians, and that makes us incredibly susceptible to deception, both theological and political. One of the reasons why I felt it so necessary to teach the Bible and history on Wednesday nights is that very reason. We uh, who forget history are doomed to repeat it. And there are so many lessons. Not that I just want you to understand the Scriptures from a historical perspective, but I want you to understand what has happened in history and how it affected Christians then, And how it will affect us if we're not careful. And so, now that we've kind of thought about some of this and asked some of these questions, let me take you back to first century Palestine for a minute. Let me take you back to when Peter and Paul are writing these epistles. And a guy by the name of Nero is the emperor. One of the most wicked, vile men that has ever lived uh, is in office. Is controlling the entire known world, basically, at that time. And during this season and even before, Rome had ushered in what was called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Rome was huge. It encapsulated different uh, cultures and ethnicities and certainly different religions. And yet it was able to keep peace and harmony throughout. Uh, How in the world did an empire that big maintain such uh, such a period and a stretch of of peace of relative peace Uh, as i told you on wednesday nights the thing about rome is they were uh, a a vastly uh, overwhelming power military power but most of the time rome never went out picking the fights everybody picked a fight with them Uh, and because of that rome would win the battle and expand their territory but they didn't at least at first go out and really try to overtake the world like uh, alexander the great did with greece and so Uh, Rome is is in this period of peace and they've got all these different kinds of people. How did they they manage to keep peace? Well, one of the ways that they they did so was Rome didn't care who or what you worshipped. You could have any gods you wanted to or as many gods as you wanted to. You could set up an altar and worship your gods. You could sacrifice to your god and Rome could care less. Jesus and and the disciples weren't killed because they worshipped Jesus. Or because Jesus set himself up as a figure of worship. The problem Rome had was, there was one God above every other God. And that was Caesar. And if you said that there was someone greater than Caesar, if you said that Caesar wasn't Lord, that Jesus was Lord you were committing treason, and you would die a painful death as a result. And so it came down to the fact where if you were asked to take a pinch of incense and throw it on the altar and say, Kaiser Curios, Caesar is Lord, would you be willing to do that? And the Christians were not. They wouldn't compromise. And they were burned alive and they had their skin literally cut from their bodies and they were fed to lions just because they would not say that Caesar is Lord. The faithfulness of those early Christians to not compromise on something that I think most of us today would say, well, it's no big deal. I can worship Jesus privately, but in public I just have to say, uh, you know, Caesar's, Caesar's Lord. And uh, I can save my life, save my family's life. It seems like a pretty good deal. But not for these early Christians. They weren't willing to submit to the government's demands that they worship Caesar as God. They rebelled against the law of the land when it violated their conscience, when it violated the Word of God. They would not submit to that. Let me show you an example in John 19, verses 12 through 15. John 19, 12 through 15, it says this, From then on, so Jesus is already being tried at this point. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, Jesus. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. See how they're appealing to that law of the land, that understanding that that Caesar is God, that there is no other God above Caesar. And they're threatening Pilate with that. If you let this guy go and you know that he is being worshipped as God... You're not a friend to Caesar. The Jews know how to play this thing. They know that Pilate is the governor and that he's responsible to Caesar and they know exactly what to say to make him change his mind. It's because of that cultural and historical setting that this makes sense. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat him down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour and he said to the Jews, listen, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. They had compromised, they had conformed to the world, and they said, we won't worship another god, we will put Caesar on the throne and worship him. It was so bad in those times that Julius Caesar, upon his death, had uh, an altar, a temple built. The people built a temple to him in Ephesus and worshipped him as a god. His son, Octavian, came to power next, changes his name to Augustus and calls himself the Divi Filius, the Son of God. It was to a point where Augustus had coins minted with his face on the front and on the back there is salvation and no other name. Does that sound familiar? In Acts 4.12, Peter stands up in opposition to this godless government, this pressure that he is getting to stop preaching the gospel and says in acts four twelve, there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved he wasn't talking about caesar he was speaking of jesus and by making that statement and when you see that now you understand much more about what that text actually means He wasn't just making a statement. He wasn't just boldly preaching the gospel. He was committing treason. He was saying, your coin might say that there's salvation in no other name except Caesar Augustus, but I'm telling you that there is a name above every other name and there's salvation in no one else but this name. The name is Jesus. And he was standing in opposition to the government. In that moment, he was committing treason to say that Jesus is Lord made you an enemy of the state without question. We could could look into the book of Acts and, and time will constrain us from doing so, but in Acts 13, Peter is arrested. He's in prison. He's sleeping with two guards sleeping on either side of him. And an angel comes and wakes him and opens the prison door, and leads him out. Did Peter stop and say, I'm sorry, thank you for the offer, but I'm supposed to be submissive to the government and I have to follow their authority, so you go ahead and shut the door, I'm going to stay here. That's not what he did. He left, he got out of there, and he went back and began preaching the gospel again. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas are in jail in Philippi, and an earthquake happens and the prison door is open. Did they say, uh, no worries, I'm going to shut the door back here and lock it up. We're going to submit to the government and we're going to stay right in here. No. They went with the Philippian jailer to his house. He bandaged up their wounds and he got saved and so did his house as a result. And Paul and Silas went on their way. So we see them doing these things. We see them and we see the disciples not always submitting to the government yet Paul wrote these epistles. Peter wrote these epistles. And he's telling us to submit. What is going on? Are they being hypocritical? Were they commanding us to do things that they themselves did not do? I, I would say that no, they didn't. And, and we're going to look and we could, we could make example on and on where Moses and Aaron didn't obey Pharaoh. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't obey Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel didn't obey Darius. The disciples didn't obey, and the apostles didn't obey the Sanhedrin. Over and over again, there were government authorities that made unjust laws and regulations, unbiblical demands, and the people of God did not obey. They did not obey those commands. So when we read 1 Peter 2.13 and we read Romans 13.1, And we see those things. How do we reconcile that? How do we reconcile uh, the fact that the Scriptures tell us to be submissive? Here is the point that I want you to take away from this lesson, from this teaching, from the Word of God, from the examples that I've given you, and I'll give you more. It is possible to be submissive and disobedient. It is possible to be submissive in posture and disobedient in practice what do i mean by that there's two words in the greek first of all that can be used and peter and paul both use the first hupotasso it means to fall in rank it's a military term if you've served in the military you understand that there are ranks and different roles and it is to it is to stay in your lane if you will it is to understand your position and to live in that position that is the word that is used in our text today To understand that government has a role to play, we have a role, and we need to function within those roles. The other word is hupokuo, and that means to follow a command. And that is not the word that is used in our text. They could have used that word, but they didn't. They used hupotasso instead, and I think there's a reason for that. Let me read to you a text that I've been hitting on a lot lately. A text that you know, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. I'm going to give it to you verse by verse. Matthew 28, 18, the beginning of the Great Commission. This is the part that we usually leave out. And we just jump right into go, therefore, and make disciples. But it makes no sense if we don't start with this verse. Jesus came and said to them, to the disciples, All authority, all authority, you see that? In heaven and on earth. Has been given to me. Who has all authority? Where does he have authority? On heaven and earth. Verse 20, or verse 19, I'm sorry. Go therefore. Remember, we always talk about the therefore. What is it there for? It's looking back. Because Jesus has all authority in heaven and in earth, we as his people can therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son. And the Holy Spirit. We have a divine mandate to go into the world. That Jesus has authority over. And we as ambassadors have the same authority. To go and proclaim the good news to the world. Verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold I am with you always to the end of the age. Teach the people to observe The things that I command you because they comes with my authority behind them. As believers, we have one king that we ultimately answer to. And that is Jesus. So what happens when God's authority and the government's authority clash? What happens? Acts 5 Verses 28 and 29 give us an example of what happens when government's authority and God's authority clash. Acts 5, 28 and 29. The Sanhedrin speaking here. We, which was the government authority of that time, we strictly charged you not to teach in His name, in this name. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Why did they do that? Because in Matthew 28, 18-20, the one with all authority said, Go. And they listened to what He said. And this government said, You can't go. You can't preach in public. You can't tell people that Jesus is Lord. Because Caesar is Lord. And you're stirring up people. And you're causing division. And you're causing problems. Stop or we will throw you in jail and we will kill you if you don't stop doing this. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Verse 29, But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The same guy that wrote in 1 Peter 2.13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it is to the emperor or to governors, said we must obey God rather than men. Was Peter confused? Did he forget what he said when he wrote his epistle? I don't think so. Because you can submit and still be disobedient. And that is exactly what we see Peter doing. How do we submit but not obey you won't like this. We as American Christians will not like this. And I think this is why we as American Christians, I hate to say this, God forgive me if I'm wrong, but I think most American Christians will compromise rather than do this. I think when it comes down to it, a lot of Christians will give the pinch of incest and say Kaiser Kurios rather than take this to heart. How can we, how can we submit to government and be disobedient at the same time? We humbly subject ourselves to the consequences of our civil disobedience. When Peter stood before the government authorities and said, it is better to obey God than man, he knew that most likely he'd go to jail. He knew that Nero would most likely have him beheaded or crucified or worse. And he said, I'm willing to face the consequences I'll submit to you. You have the power and the authority given to you from God to take my life. But I'm going to obey God rather than man. He submitted, but he would not obey. He would not stop preaching the gospel. He knew what it was going to cost him. And he was willing to face that. And that is where we as American Christians struggle because we love our peace and we love our comfort and we don't want to upset anybody. And we certainly don't want to go to jail and we certainly don't want to die. So we'll give the pinch of incense. And that's a decision that only you can make. But I'm telling you that based on the Word of God, you can submit to government authority, but you should never obey when they overstep their bounds or when they ask you to do something that the Word of God forbids. And we submit ourselves in our disobedience to the consequences that will come, just like the Lord Jesus did. He's our example. Peter gives that example in a few verses later. 1 Peter 2.23 says of Jesus, When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten. But look what He does. He continued entrusting Himself to the One who judges justly. He gave Himself into the hands of the Father. He said, you know, no one takes my life from me. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up again. He could have stopped. He went through a sham trial and they accused him of things that he never did and he never opened his mouth. He submitted to them willingly. He, let them. he knew what was coming and it was part of the Father's plan and he followed it to a T. He entrusted himself. And when we disobey, we have to entrust ourselves to the one who is just. To the one who will make sure that all wrongs are righted one day. So here's the next question. How do we decide when civil disobedience is warranted? We're not, we're not anarchists. I don't advocate just being lawless just because you don't like a law. If you don't like the fact that it's 45 and you want to go 85 out there on Millville, I don't advocate for that. You can do that and you're breaking the law and the, law and the government will step in and do what it's called to do. But there are times when we can submit, but disobedience is necessary. How do we know when that's warranted? Number one, it's when government forbids what God commands. When the government forbids what God commands, government has overstepped its God-given authority, and civil disobedience is to be expected from the people of God, because we will serve God rather than man. Number two, when government commands what God forbids. When the government commands that we do things, recognize things, say things that go against the word of God, we'll submit to the authority of government and take the consequences that come, but we will disobey. I will not ever listen to the government that tells me that I have to say that there is marriage outside of a man and a woman. No matter what the law says. I will, I will love those people. I will minister to those people. I will stand up for them to be treated with dignity and respect. They deserve that as creatures made in the image of God. We should never look down on anybody because of their sexual orientation. We should never think we're better than somebody because of their sexual orientation. But when the government oversteps its authority and begins to tell us how we ought to view the sanctity of marriage, the sanctity of life, and it goes against the word of God my friends you will either offer a pinch of incense or you will stand up and suffer the consequences but you've got to make a decision and lastly how do we decide when civil disobedience is warranted when the government commands what isn't theirs to command when the government commands what isn't theirs to command they have overstepped their God given authority and at that point disobedience is to be exercised look at Romans 13:1 again Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Now look at the next part. There is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted or appointed, ordained, assigned by God. I'll ask you the question again based on that verse. Where does ultimate authority come from? God. Who grants the government their authority? God. All authority is God's. We read that in the Great Commission. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to to Christ. Government is simply a steward of God's authority. Government is not autonomous. God didn't create government and say, Go do your thing, create your laws, govern according to your own worldly standards, and I'll just kind of turn my head. God is sovereign over everything. Including worldly governments. He puts kings in place. And sometimes godless governments are a judgment from God. Sometimes the government we get is the government we deserve for our ungodliness. So don't ever forget that either. Many a times in the Old Testament, God raised up godless governments to chastise His own people. And then He wiped out the godless government after He had used them as a tool for His bidding. So don't ever underestimate that that could be a possibility as well. But here is the thing. God has ordained the church. The church is God's too. All authority has not been given to the pastor. It's not been given to the deacons. And it's not been given to the membership. The authority of the church lies with Christ and His Word. And as a result of that, we have obligations as believers. And one of those obligations is to proclaim truth to the world, including truth to the government and to call people to repent and to call governments to repent. And when government oversteps its boundaries, when government advocates for ungodly policies and principles, we are to call the government to repentance in light of the Word of God. We are to be advocates for truth and we are to speak the gospel, the truth in love, to the government institutions and those in power as well. We don't detach. Churches and Christians have become so afraid to speak on politics and political things because we got to separate those two. And we can't have any mixing of those things. The Bible has a lot to say about those things, and I don't know why we avoid it, other than maybe we're so concerned about our tax-exempt status that we're afraid to say anything. But listen, we do great disservice to the church, to the Word of God, and to our world When we don't engage in politics, we are to be the ones that initiate the change. We have the truth, and when we tuck it away and hide it under a bushel basket, no one sees our light shine. And perhaps the reason our governments have gotten so godless is because Christians have gotten so apathetic about being engaged in political atmospheres. It goes beyond just voting for your favorite persona every four years and then saying well we got our guy in the office now we can kick back put our feet up and let him run things for the next four years that hasn't been working out well for us church for a long time regardless of what letters after his name i know that again i get it some are some have policies that are good and some have policies that aren't but at the end of the day they all have an agenda and there are all things about it that are against the word of god and we need to be outspoken regardless of if it's our guy or not our guy we need to call folks to repentance and speak truth when it's needed. First Timothy 3.15, Paul is writing to uh, Timothy there about the church in Ephesus. And he says, if I delay in coming to you, the, uh, these things he's been teaching, he says that you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And look what he says. The church of the living God is a pillar and a buttress or a foundation of the truth. That is the church's duty, to be a pillar and a foundation of truth. Because government, just like any other human institution, just like every human being, government is accountable to God. Government is ultimately accountable to God. And they should govern as His servants according to the Word of God. Now, we would be naive if we think that any of our human governments, uh, at least in the last, I don't know, decades and centuries, governs explicitly according to the Word of God. But that is how God ordained it to be done. That is how he set it up. And because man has deviated from it, we don't just say, well, they're doing the best they can. We're just going to have to go along with it. No, this is the standard. And the authority is God's. And when government deviates from that, we call them to repent. We as God's people call them to repent. So look at Romans again, verse 2. It says, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. For those who resist will incur judgment. You say, well, wait a minute now, Pastor. It says right there, if you resist, if we resist, we're going to be judged. And again, we're speaking about the submission. We recognize that government has a role, that it has authority granted to it from God. But we don't obey when it is against the principles that we as Christians hold to in the Word of God. We submit to that authority. But we don't have to obey that authority when it violates the conscience and the truth of the Word. There is a difference. You've got to separate the submission and the obedience. Go back with me to First Peter again now. I want us to look at verse 14. He says uh, to, the writers, to the readers there... Let me jump back to 13 so it makes sense. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by Him. Now now look at this next part because this is important. To punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. You see that? The empire and the governor are sent by Him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Let me read it from, and I'm jumping back and forth here, but let me read to you from Romans 13, verses 3 and 4. See if you see the parallel. Look for the, the common theme here. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. Now listen to what he says here. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God. An avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. What are we seeing in verse 14 and then in these verses from Romans 13? We are seeing the purpose of government. What is the purpose of government according to Peter and according to Paul in the inspired Word of God? It is to punish evil and reward good. God's plan and God's authority, He instituted human government... For that purpose, to punish evil and to praise what is good. Now here's a question. Who determines what is good and what is evil? God does. What do we do in a world that calls evil good and good evil? Civil disobedience, my friends, is at times required when the government wants to call evil good and good evil. We submit to that in the fact that we understand that when we disobey, there will be consequences. When the Equality Act is passed, if it is passed, and we continue to preach biblical values, that there is, in fact, consequences that we could face. That you may have to tune into a live stream from Butler County Jail while I preach to you. And you laugh, but it's the truth. And there are pastors in this country, that have already been imprisoned, and there are many pastors that have been imprisoned in the world, simply because they stood in a public square and preached Genesis 1. And that is the reality. You could very well lose the tax-exempt status of this church, which would be a big financial strain, maybe not so much on us, but on millions of little churches that need every dime they can get there are consequences that we have to be willing to say, we'll take them. We'll take them if that's what it means for us to not offer that pinch of incense. We're not going to bow our knee to Caesar. And again, right now, we've not been faced with that decision. But I pray, and I pray we never are. But if we are, what will you do? What will you do in that moment? The purpose of government is to reward good and evil. Who determines good and evil? God does. If you look in Romans 13, if you jump down a little bit to verse 9, you see that Paul actually uses and gives God's law as the standard. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, not murder, not steal, not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in one word, love your neighbor as yourself. As he talks about the government's authority, he says the ultimate standard is the law of God. God is the one that determines good and evil, not human beings. Our standard is subjective. What I think is good and evil, you may disagree with. But God's standard is timeless. It's eternal. It doesn't change. God is the one that sets up these things. And God has ordained three divine institutions in His creation. The family... The church and the government. And each has a role and each has a duty. And problems come when one tries to overstep into another lane that it's not been created to be in. And the problem with government today is they have overstepped their boundaries. They want to tell churches how to worship. They want to tell us what to believe and where to believe it at and when to say it and how to say it, when we should worship. When we should shut our doors, how many people ought to be allowed to come into the building for worship? Listen, Hebrews 10.25 says we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, and there's no fine print that says unless there's a supposed pandemic going on. When the government says shut your doors, it's overstepping, it's God-given authority. I'm just being honest. Every church has a right to decide if they want to do that. If the church decides and the leadership decides that we want to be safe, we're going to close down, we're going to mandate certain things, that's fine. But that authority and that command doesn't come from government. That is the church decision. When the government comes into the home, the family, and says that your children ought to be allowed to decide what gender they are, that they ought to be able to decide who they are and what their name ought to be and what pronoun to be used, the government is overstepping its authority. That is the family's decision, not the government's. And that is why we see the mess that we're in as we have rolled over and allowed the government to overstep its boundaries. We can submit... But we cannot obey these godly things that the government is doing. We must serve God rather than man. And I'm going to close with this thought. I'm going to ask you a question. What are you willing to fight for? Maybe what are you willing to die for? Are you willing to face the consequences to go out into the world and preach the gospel? It's a command from God. And when we are... The government attempts to silence us in the public square with threats of imprisonment or worse. Are you willing to stand up and say, there's no name given under heaven among men whereby you must be saved, and I will continue to preach the gospel? Or are you going to say, well, here's my pinch of incense, I don't want to go to prison. To assemble together peacefully, when the government comes and says, lock your doors, church. We're going to flatten the curve for the next 15 days or 480 days, whatever comes first. Are we going to just shut up the doors and say, well, because one of the problems, one of the things, and I know I'm going a little long, I hope, I hope you'll bear with me for a few more minutes. One of the things that I think this last year has revealed to me is a poor understanding of ecclesiology. You say, what in the world is ecclesiology? It's the doctrine of the church. And I think that I've seen more and more. I've already seen a lot of it where people say, well, I don't, I don't need to go to church. I can have a relationship with God. I don't need to go to church. But we've heightened that now. And I thank God. I thank God if you're watching online. I thank God that a lot of you watch online uh, that are here today and have watched online. And I'm glad for those that genuinely need that, uh, that, that service. I'm glad that we can offer that. But because we have such poor ecclesiology, a lot of people have said, well, doesn't matter if I come to the building, or doesn't matter if I sit on my couch in my pajamas with my with my uh, egg McMuffin. It doesn't matter. I'm at church. No, you're not. No, you're not. There is a gathering together on the Lord's Day with God's people in God's house. The, listen, God left us two ordinances: the Lord's Supper and baptism, and you can't do either one on your couch. You got to come to church and be with God's people. Listen, God ordained pastors to be overseers of the church. I'm not going to come to each one of you's living room and oversee things for you each and every week. We gather here together. There is a purpose for the church, but our ecclesiology is so poor that we think, well, it doesn't matter if I stream it, doesn't matter if I come, if I go, it really doesn't matter because church is just an option. And that's not the case. God has ordained the church, and the reason that we see such a mess in the world is because we have failed to be the church. And part of that is gathering together when we are able to worship. What we are doing here today is commanded by God and it's something that is special to God. We shouldn't take it lightly. We don't have to worship. We get to worship. And we get to worship together as His people. Are you willing to fight for that? And the last one I would say is, are you willing to fight to raise a family biblically? They're coming for your children. And I'm not saying that to scare you. I'm saying that to warn you. They are coming for your children, and they have been for some time. And we just keep right on letting them go to them. And again, you've heard me say it, I'm not anti-public school at all. But my friends, that is the indoctrination grounds for a lot of these things that happen. And so, if you're going to send your children to public school, if you've made that decision, fine. But you better be doubly invested in knowing what's going on. You better be sitting down with your kids at night, around the table, and going over those lessons. You better be laying a foundation in the Word of God or they are going to end up becoming unbelievers without question. Without question. Are you willing to say that I will disobey the government when they try to intrude in my home and tell me how to parent and raise my children? You better be ready because it's coming. I want to close with 1 Timothy 2. 1 and 2, I'm going to ask Brian and Tiffany to come. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2 says this. First of all, then, I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we, be, that we may be made to lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Listen, church, it doesn't matter if, if, if He's not your president in your mind or whatever. We are called to pray for Him. We are called to pray for our government. We are called to pray for them to know the Lord, to see the Lord, to have a relationship with Him, to govern according to the authority that He has given. And we are as best as possible to live peaceful lives. I hope that you don't leave here today saying, Pastor said that we can just break the law, that we don't have to obey the government, that he said that the Bible is the only thing that we're theonomists and we just believe in the Word of God to be the law and we don't have to worry about any other law but this. That's not what I said today at all. I said that there is a time when the Word of God is transgressed by the government and we will submit to them, but we will not obey. And you have to make that decision. The biggest decision that you can make today is are you obeying the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Is He truly your Lord and Savior? Will you follow Him and give your life to Him? If not, none of this other stuff matters. So if you don't know Christ today as your Savior, my prayer is that you would give your life to Him. And if you do, it's my prayer that we would live every day for Him And we would set an example. And when we see these godless things happening in our government, that we we wouldn't just wring our hands. And we wouldn't just say that, well, maybe next election cycle we can get something better. Probably not. Maybe. Maybe not. But we don't have to wait for that. We have got the Word of God and we have got the truth. And we can stand up, that we can demand, as God's people, that these godly principles that we say we voted for be followed. They're not leaders, they're representatives of the people. And we ought to demand that they represent we the people, not their own wishes and their own ungodly desires. We've got to make a difference and there are ways that we can do so. So let's pray together and then we're going to sing a hymn of invitation and the altar is open if you want to come this morning. Father, we thank you for the government and we thank you for those that are in charge and in power. We know that nothing happens without your permission of it. And so, Lord, we pray for our president and our government. We pray that, Lord, they would hear these words, uh, that the word speaks and that that bold men and women say, and that they would repent of their sins, Lord, and their overreach. And that, Lord, uh, you would rule in their lives and in their hearts and in this country again, Lord. We need you, and we desire you as your people. Uh, You are our king, and we want to serve you. We want to live peaceful lives, Lord. We want to be in harmony with all men as much as possible. So, Lord, help us to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And Lord, teach us to follow Your Word and to be willing to live out that Word even when it's difficult. We thank You again, Lord, for loving us and for giving us a church to worship together in. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we stand and as we sing, if you need to come, you come. So we sing, I surrender all. Will you do that today?